Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I am super excited, Eve, to welcome you to Leave Your Mark. Thank you for joining the podcast today. I love your podcast, and I feel very honored that I get to be on it with such amazing guests that you normally have. Oh, thank you. So for everyone listening, Eve Rodsky has written probably one of the most prolific books on sort of the balance between partners called Fair Play. You are a New York Times bestselling author. And Fair Play is a first-of-its-kind collaboration with Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine Media Company. Can we talk about what that means? Like, what is the collaboration? What can we expect? Oh, thank you. That's a good question. And I don't get to really explore it that much. But I'll give you a little bit of a story of sort of how it came about. I was working on this project for seven years. Wow. Um, This started with a text my husband sent me that just said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. (gasps) (laughs) I think I've gotten that text before. Yes. Go on. We all can picture that scene, right? Uh, After my second son was born, I had the diaper bag on the passenger seat of the car with my breast pump and gifts for a newborn baby to return in the backseat of my car. I had a client contract because I'm a lawyer by trade and mediator on my lap with a pen that was sort of stabbing me in the vagina. Um, <laughs> I was trying to work up this contract on the way to race to pick up my second son, Zach, who was three at the time at his toddler transition program, which in America, because we really value working families, lasts like five minutes. <laughs> and that text sent me sobbing. I pulled over. It was one of those meta days, you know, like those days where you your life changes, but it feels very small in the moment, but it ends up being transformative. Mm-hmm. That was a day that I was thinking to myself, you know, this is not the life I envisioned. Um, I had married a fair partner. I'm from a single mom household where I promised myself I would have an equal partner. And I did. But then one day I woke up and I was so overwhelmed. I couldn't even manage it. I used to be able to manage employee teams. And now I couldn't even manage a grocery list, apparently. And um, more importantly, I had become, I call them fair play, the default or the she fault for every single household and childcare task for my family. So that led me on a quest through my first iteration was to read every book and article ever written on the gender division of labor, the mental load, emotional labor, invisible work. But the term I loved the best was invisible work from 1986. Mm. Because I thought to myself, 
how can you value the invisible? And if I made visible everything I could for Seth, my husband, then maybe things would change. So I started a should I do spreadsheet that ended up being 98 tabs and about 28 sub tabs over a thousand items of invisible work. You started an Excel spreadsheet, is that what you said? An Excel spreadsheet that was sourced from women all over the country, including Reese. That's how she got involved because she's a family friend and she contributed and was interested in this crazy spreadsheet I had created with women all over the country called the Should I Do Spreadsheet. And really what it is, <laughs> at least I'm a great spreadsheet. I'm a lawyer. Uh, I'm an organization management specialist. I'm a mediator. I love spreadsheets. So I took that rigor of my love of spreadsheets and I started asking women, what do you do that's invisible to your partner that you may be doing for him or your kids or your household that takes more than two minutes of quantifiable time? Mm-hmm. Because you can't quantify giving you know your kids love, but you can quantify the time it takes to buy flowers for their recital. Or pack a lunch. Or pack a lunch or write a note to them. So that was a really fun process. It took me about nine months. Like literally the time it takes to have a baby. (laughs) It was a baby. It was my baby. Yes. It was so fun to write this list. Because obviously, like you said, there was making lunches. You know, there was like the taking my kids to the dentist. There was the researching a great adenoids doctor for my kids' sinuses. All that stuff. But what was fun was to get the responses from women who I didn't even know. So I had women texting me, you know, I received your spreadsheet and you forgot Girl Scout cookies ordering in sales, five hours. Totally. You forgot uh, Elf on the Shelf, one hour times 20 nights. I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot that because I'm a Jew. I don't really do Elf on the Shelf, but you're right. Um, (laughs) Wait, how many kids do you have? I have three kids. I have an 11-year-old son, Zach. He was the one who was in that toddler transition program at the time when I started this project, he's now 11. Oh, I, my baby is now eight, the one who was in the car with me, Ben. And then I have another child, Anna, who's three. Oh my God. You got your hands full. Yes, wow. Yes. Okay. So you create this amazing list, which by the way, I think should be a billboard somewhere. Right. Just the whole thing, a billboard in Times Square or somewhere, maybe for promo for the movie one day. Yeah, yeah. So do you show it to your husband? Like what happens? So I had sourced it. And like I said, you know, Reese had been interested in it at that stage. She had looked at it. It was surprised by the depth and breadth of all the things <laughs> on there. And yes. Okay. So this is the thing, right? I'm a lawyer. I'm, I'm trained to communicate. And so I did... <laughs> The best thing ever, I I send off the 19 million megabyte spreadsheet to Seth um, <laughs> with just a subject line that said, can't wait to discuss. Oh my God, you're amazing. I'm surprised you didn't send a calendar notice to hold the time. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, you can imagine, I didn't even get the courtesy of the three monkey trio, right? I didn't even get the see no, hear no, whatever, speak no evil monkeys. I just got the one sad monkey, the one that's covering its eyes. Oh my. That was it. All that work and just that. That's it. And so I realized this is really resonating with women particularly, right? This is a gender division of labor issue. And look, in my household, there was a see no evil, right? My husband's like, I don't have any fucking idea what to do with this 19 million megabyte spreadsheet. I gave him zero context. And I started thinking to myself, look, lists alone, they don't work. We've been making lists for a hundred years. True. And so... I sort of had that realization around the same time. But what was also happening was that people who had received the spreadsheet, I had a woman, you can't make this stuff up, a woman from the Jewish Federation of Arizona 
leaving me a message saying, I just want to let you know I'm not staying in my marriage. <laughs> so the Shaggy spreadsheet sort of had at least a shitstorm. Wow. And I think about that a lot now, now that I have finally spent, you know, the seven years developing a solution. When you unleash unconsciousness without any solution, it can be a do no harm. Consciousness raising is important, but if there's nothing to do about it, it can be a do no harm. And in that case, for that woman, it was. So, okay. So she, this is a person you don't know or you do? I did not know her. No. This spreadsheet was emailed from one person to the next and everyone contributed. And then how did she contact you to tell you that she was leaving her husband? A phone call. Oh, wow. So she must have gotten my number through our friend. Um, But yeah, she left me a message. What did you think to yourself when you heard that? Well, there was a lot happening at the time, right? Because this was Ironically, for me, as a feminist who marched in the, her first ERA, a single mom in 15 months, um, and somebody who you know took women's studies class and try to understand gender and critical race theory and critical gender theory, and um, I didn't know about this issue. So I think for me, it was a lot of learning in the beginning of the process. And part of the learning was really discovering for myself um, that we had been talking about this issue of the unfairness of women doing two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family, $10.8 trillion a year of unpaid labor around the world that women do for a hundred years. We had been talking about for a hundred years, but what I was, I'm a mediator. I work with complex families. So what I kept thinking to myself is, do I just resign myself to doing it all? You know, do I let women's marriages end? Do I just let Seth send me that one emoji, or do I become my own client? And that's interesting. I, I put my mediator hat on, and I became my own client. And that's what took me sort of the the next four years after the shit I do spreadsheet um, was testing a system for what I knew worked in the workplace and what I knew worked for my clients. And that's a system based on clearly defined expectations. And what it comes down to is that even my Aunt Marion's Mahjong group had more clearly defined expectations than the home. You don't bring snack twice. You're fucking out. (laughs) But the home is nothing like that. We don't treat our home as our most important organization. True. We don't treat it with any respect and rigor. We just think we're going to figure it out. And then what we do is we figure things out with micro decisions. We get decision fatigue because we're making thousands of decisions a week with each other. Who's taking the kids to practice? Who's taking the sponge out of the sink? Who's going to clean up tonight? Who wants to get grab dinner? What are we doing this weekend? It's just mind numbing. And we can't live like that. You can't live like that and expect to live your best life because you are going to drown or you're going to have a pen in your stabbing you in the vagina. And you know, you bring up, those are like very one-off things like birthday party. Like that's like a 25 step line item. Correct. So there's like stuff behind that line that like nobody knows about also. Well, thank you. Thank you. I feel like you just set me up to talk um, <laughs> because that is exactly what I would want your listeners to get out of today was that it was the invisible work, what I call from organizational management, the conception and planning that women were doing, whereas men, so I ended up interviewing along the way over 500 men and women that mirrored the U.S. Census, including same-sex couples. That took a long time. But the beauty of those interviews was understanding that, I'll give you a good example. 
who called the case the mustard. Somebody, and this was happening all over the country in my interviews, somebody has to know that your second son, Johnny, likes French's yellow mustard on his hot dog or his protein. Otherwise, he won't eat it. Okay, that's, that's an organizational management, project management language, what we call conception. Yes. And somebody has to monitor that mustard when it's running low and put it on the grocery <laughs> list with everything else you need for the week for your menus that you're making. That is planning. That's what an organizational management, project management, we call planning. And then somebody has to get their butt to the store to purchase the French's yellow mustard. Well, here's the problem in my interview set, which is very big, was that that's where men were stepping in. They were stepping in at the execution phase. And that's a major problem because they bring home spicy Dijon, the gross kind with the seeds, every time. They just do. And so that's sort of what happened to Fair Play. It became a love letter to men because men started saying to me all over the country things like, well, I would do more in the home. I really would, but I can't get anything right. Okay. So I have a question. It's funny. I didn't expect you to say that they brought home the wrong mustard. What I expected you to say was that basically behind the scenes, you are the one that knows about the mustard. You're the one monitoring the mustard. You're the one who gave the direction to get the mustard. Husband comes home, gets full credit for bringing the That's another scenario. And that's what I call in fair play the case of the over-reporter. What science shows, shows, this was very prevalent in my findings as well, science shows that we as a culture focus on execution. So when you see the dad at the baseball game, right, you're like, wow, what a great fucking dad. You know, he showed up (laughs) for his kids. And so that was what was happening. Once I had that realization that we weren't using organizational management and I, I even Googled it, Lisa. I went through everything. I, I Googled organizational management for the home. And you know what I found? Nothing. All I found was the life-changing magic of organizing your fucking junk drawer. Okay. I wanted to organize my fucking life. And so what I realized is that there's beauty in long-term planning. There is beauty in clearly defined expectations. It's what I do for a living for highly complex families that look like the HBO show Succession. But clearly defined expectations requires who and what are responsible and how do you do what you need to do reliably and well. And the way to get there is to understand that there is conception and planning behind every execution. Mm -hmm. So when Seth and I got to sit down when emotion was low and cognition was high, which is never around the home, and we started to sit down and I started to explain to him these concepts and, you know, not just email bombing him, you know, 19 million megabyte spreadsheets, but saying things to him like, I don't even know if you know the amount of hour it takes me to get you to that little league field. And yes, thank you for showing up. But here's the conception and planning behind it. The conception is I had to survey my kids for what sports they want to play. I had to survey their friends for what teams to be on. I had to survey my community to see what leagues there are out there. Then mm-hmm. I had to find out what dates those things were going to happen, whether or not they were going to play more than one sport. I had to figure out the calendar information, the portal to log into, the five consent forms to print out, the coach's gift, the organizing carpool practices. I said, it's about six hours a week of my time. So when Seth realized that conception and planning execution had to stay together, that was what I was testing for the fair play system. He did it. And the thing is, because we both value extracurricular sports, he enjoyed it because he said, it's the first time I feel like you're not fucking nagging me. 
Hmm. One man said to me, it's not sexy for my wife to be in charge. And it isn't. It isn't. But then again, I said, then why don't you take the initiative and step up, you know? Wait, let's dig into that a little. What does that mean exactly? Just because they don't want to be told what to do. Correct. Another man said to me, when I feel parented or when I feel like my wife says she trains me, I'm a dog. It doesn't really feel like we want to be in a romantic relationship. And again, I'm just giving the male perspective. Sure. I would say back to those men, which I do say in fair play, which is why ironically, 65% of the emails I've been getting to info at Eve Rodsky, which means someone had to really find me, um, have been men. Because even though this book is full of a lot of female anger in the beginning and humor, hopefully, it's really meant to be a solution that invites men to the table. And it invites men to the table by saying, when you take ownership, of household tasks, the way you do at work, it changes everything. Number one reason men said they hated home life to me in my 500 plus interviews was nagging or not getting things right. Number one reason women told me they hated home life was they felt too overwhelmed from all the shit that was in their head. Mm-hmm. The only way to alleviate both of those problems is for men to take over the conception and planning, to own the full mustard situation. Right. And once Beth and I started to do that and practice that and had other friends and family practice that, I started seeing transformative change in people's homes. The testing took me years because I wanted to write a chapter. The last chapter of Fair Play is called The Top 13 Mistakes Couples Make in the Fair Play Fix. But that was really important to me to understand what the problems were, what the hurdles were, and how do you get to a place where you're not treating your home with less respect than a Mahjong group? but you're treating your home as your most important organization. Yeah, you're the CEO of your home for sure. And so that's the thing. I don't want to be telling my husband and delegating what to do all the time. I want him to be the CEO of mustard, of groceries for the week. I want him to be the CEO of extracurricular sports. And once he realized that that required the conception planning and the overseeing of the execution, I don't care who takes my kids to carpool as long as he knows and they're getting their safe. And they have sunscreen, maybe, and some protective gear. That was our minimum standard of care. We can talk about that. But that's ultimately the concept. And it's a system. So it requires practice, and it requires you entering a system. But the good news is I promise you it works. And there are thousands of people playing. And so it's been really, really, really exciting. I think it's so funny, in a way, that it's a game. Because it's really not a game. I mean, it's really just smart division of labor. Correct. So I'm just curious, though. I mean, you happen to have, I think, a saint of a husband to be willing to be the prime example yes. of this experiment. I, I'm not sure my husband my husband would be so amenable. Well, my husband's not amenable. He was not amenable. But what he said to me was that he said, you should have bumper stickers that say your CPE means so much to me. Because <laughs> what he was, was the benefits for him. He is somebody who was very traditional. He's somebody who said to me things like, I make more money than you. So of course you should do more in the home. I mean, this was not somebody who was a gender justice advocate in that way. I mean, you know, he invests in female companies. He believes that women should, you know, live fair lives. And that's the irony. We have good men that we're married to, but this is what happens to society when you're not calling out a problem, when you're living in pre-consciousness, The good men, my husband who shared, you know, washing the dishes and taking out the trash and helping me with my career. Once we had kids, especially, everything changed. 
everything changed. And that's sort of how the science shows it. What happens to men after kids is that they do five to 15 hours a week less mm-hmm. in the home. Ironically, when there's even way more to do, they start doing less. And so that can't be a good pattern for anybody's opposite sex marriages. It just can't be. Of all these, I mean, probably hundreds of thousands of people who are playing, like, how are you capturing those stories, like the results of the game? That's a great question. We have two ways. One is anecdotally, right? So we have lots of testimonials and we keep them in a big, giant, you know, Google Drive. Mm -hmm. But I'm more interested in really capturing the science behind it. So the good news is that we're doing a lot around policy around these issues of unpaid labor and the unfairness in domestic work and what that would look like if there was policies that supported the playing of fair play. And we'll talk a little bit more about the card game. Don't let me forget because I want to address Absolutely. But um, I truly believe that you take individual agency in your own home and that's how that change goes out into the world. The good news is that we're capturing this, hopefully, for an actual journaled study that we want to co-write with a professor that I'm very close to who helped me a lot with the book, who works in a gender division of labor lab. And we really want to extend it out and peer review it and study the results. Mm -hmm. But the beauty of what I'm seeing is a very typical story is a man and a woman who came to me because I interviewed them for fair play. And this is not in the book because it happened after the manuscript was submitted. Julie and Ed are the names I give them because I conceal their identity. But she had heard of fair play because I interviewed her. She understood the mustard situation. I explained conception, planning, execution. And her husband was a man who said to me things like, I'm the CEO outside the home and my wife's the CEO of the home. You know, things that make me want to throw up, you know, now. Whatever. So, But, you know, he's not a bad guy, Ed and Julie. And so Julie, she calls me last Christmas, 2018, and says, I need to enter fair play. I'm about to lose my fucking mind. Mm-hmm. My mother just entered the hospital for a neurodegenerative disease. And I said, well, that's a terrible time to enter fair play. <laughs> terrible time. So true. But she said, I need Ed to take over something. So we started talking about what was breaking her. You know, she had been travel planning for their Christmas vacation. The ornaments were already out. They were, you know, doing some play at school. She's still transporting her kids to school every day, making their lunches, just too overwhelming with her mother sick too. So she tells me what's breaking her is her son Brody's second grade secret Santa project. Say that five times. I cannot. (laughs) Because it had to be done from scratch. Don't you feel like the schools, I don't know, for people out there who have kids, for those of you who don't, uh, Fair Play has 60 cards for you. You add 40 extra cards when you have kids, but maybe you shouldn't have children. (laughs) They make you do things like that. They're not very helpful. So I said to her, what's going on? So she said, I can't do this freaking project. If I ask Ed, it'll be a sock puppet. He won't get it in on time, but it'll be a mess. You know, just all these reasons why she couldn't ask Ed for help with this one damn card, the homework card for one project. It felt so insignificant to me, but she had so many hurdles about why she couldn't get this done for her husband. So I backed her up because what I want to tell your listeners is that ultimately fair play is about your why. It's about why are you doing things? As a mediator, I like to say, when you can start with your why, it's a very effective communication tool. So I backed her up and I said, why do you care about this project? It's obviously a trigger for you. Why do you care? Hmm. So she took a breath and said, well, it's the signature second grade project where we're supposed to teach our kids that they could be as happy with a homemade unwrapped gift from a friend 
as a hundred dollar Nerf gun from the store. So I said, okay, that's profound. And then I said, what else? And she said, well, I noticed my son drew the name of a little girl. I drop him off at school. I watch this little girl. She's new to the school in second grade and she walks up and down the yard. She's just waiting for the bell to ring. No one greets her. She doesn't play with anybody. And it's already close to December. You know, I, I want her to feel welcome to the school. And my son's popular. He's been there since second grade. And how nice would it be if this little girl got to open a nice gift from a kid who's popular and saying, basically, welcome to the school. We value you. Merry Christmas. So I said, that's very profound. So I said, just say that to Ed. When emotion is low, cognition is high. Say that to him without any of the other baggage you fucking told me. And she did. That was the beauty. Thank God that I checked in on them. Back to what you said about monitoring people and how I tried to go back um, at two weeks, six weeks, six months, a year. I have some FAQs on my website about how I did my research. But with this couple, I checked in with them after the holidays. And Ed tells me he begins Googling secret Santa projects for little girls with his son, Brody. So that's conception, right? Yeah. He writes down with his son everything they need. They decide on a popsicle stick jewelry box. They need colored popsicle sticks, glue, glitter, a knob. This is what Ed, my CEO outside the home, is telling me that Brody needed a knob for the little girl because he didn't want her to need two hands to open her jewelry box. I think that's brilliant, by the way. So he wanted to get a knob. That's the planning. That is the planning. For sure. And then Ed tells me he discovered this really cool store called Michael's. And you can go there and get everything you need for one project. And you don't even have to go to multiple stores. Oh, so, wow. Wow. I should check out that store. <laughs> Sounds really awesome. And he goes with Brody to uh, Michael's and they start building the project. And what Julie said to me was that her life changed that day. And it was a very transformative hyperbolic statement that doesn't usually come out of her mouth from what I know of her. And I said, well, what changed for you? And she said it was seeing Ed and Brody on the floor, something she doesn't often see. But at the corner of her eye, she told me that she noticed that Ed had glitter on his hands. And I said, well, what was so meaningful about seeing that image? And she said, well, it was the first time that I honestly felt like he was truly in it with me. And glitter is a pain in the ass to get out. So luckily it was on his clothes and not hers at the time. Mm -hmm. But it got me really thinking about small changes in your home. Because what Ed has become now is a fair play fan, a fair play player. He got so much out of that project that he even told me that Brody cried to him in the car, which I never really asked him why. So I need to ask him, but I bet you he told me that because that doesn't happen to him often. I also think, you know, it's a project for school, but what it really is, and no one sees this because it's a nuisance on the surface, it's quality time with your kid. Correct. Tova Klein, um, who's a you know well-respected professor and author, um, Barnard Children's Center a leader, she says to me, it's about the spaces in between. Mm-hmm. And women get those spaces, right? If it was up to me and my kid was emoting all over me or crying, I'd be like, oh, it's just another day of Ben crying to me. But for Ed, it was very special because it wasn't something that happened to him often. And when you start with glitter, right, when you start with just one card, this fair play is not about 50-50. It's about this idea of ownership. When you start with one card, this man, Ed, who's a very powerful man in his financial sector who keeps getting promoted, which is ironic because the more he played fair play and did more in the home, he was actually getting 
promoted, um, which doesn't always happen to women, by the way, he says to me things like, well, what would fair play look like in the workplace? And he understands now that the idea that it would mean that women's time is equal to men's. Mm -hmm. So he's talking about, you know, how do you look at pay equity? He's understanding that modeling flexibility is really important for his employees to see him leaving at three o'clock to build a popsicle stick jewelry box. We're talking about what does forced paternity leave look like? Mm -hmm. So I think the beauty of this process for me, and this all gets back to your question about how I was tracking data, is that what I'm now tracking besides just stories is actual change, policy change in companies and places where there may not have been changed before, but people are willing to take the risk to change the way they do things in the home. You are performing such an incredible service. I wonder though, so how often do you reshuffle the deck? Every week. Every week. So I talk about fair play as a practice. So I really wish I could exercise once in my life and then be fit forever and healthy, right? Yes. I wish I could meditate for 10 minutes and then be calm for the rest of my life. Unfortunately, everything good in life requires a practice. And what I mean by that is that it's not onerous because people would say to me, well, I don't want to invest 20 minutes a week in my relationship. And then I would say, well, okay, give me your, your phone for a second. And my first thing I do is I go on their screen time app. <laughs> and I say, really? You're willing to be on Instagram for three hours, but you don't want to invest 20 minutes in conversations about domestic life that I'm promising you will change your life. The reason why Fair Play is written to women is because it requires us to add our own consciousness before we go out and just throw cards at our partner. Because then it would just be another list. Sure. And it would be the shit I do spreadsheet all over again. It's a system and it's a gamified system because I know cards work because I've been using them for 10 years in my mediation practice with very difficult patriarchs and matriarchs who say things to me like, well, why are you even here working with us? I'm not going to die. So I'm like, well, I guess you don't need a succession plan if you're never going to die. But okay, how about we just change tracks? Let's look at these cards. Let's picture your legacy. Does it look like a flower? Does it look like a penny? Oh, it looks like a newspaper. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah. Well, I had my first newspaper route when I was 10 years old. And that's how I made my first money. And my father always took blah, blah, blah. Cards allow people as mediators, we like to talk about boundaries around a conversation. If your conversation with your partner becomes, you never do anything in the house because your mother did everything for you and you're spoiled fucking brat. And I hate your family. <laughs> I didn't do my job as a mediator. I didn't do my job as a fair player. So what I've done with the cards is create a boundary, a way for you to have rules, to have a conversation that many women particularly were saying to me, I cannot bring these things up. I can't communicate about domestic life. It's too triggering. But the same women, one woman says that to me, I can't communicate about domestic life. She, later in our conversation, completely unironically, she told me about the time she dumped wet clothes on her husband's pillow when he forgot to put them in the dryer. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. A woman tells me she doesn't communicate about domestic life. I found out she started an Instagram account called the shit my husband doesn't pick up. Oh, wow. Publicly shaming on Instagram. So what I'm here to tell your listeners um, of your most amazing podcast that I love Thank is you. that we are already communicating about domestic life. As a mediator, I will go on your Nest Cam today. I can circle five times you've communicated about domestic life. I don't even need to hear the words coming out of your mouth. And so when I started saying to women, particularly, I'm asking for a communication shift, not a start, 
then there was like a sigh of relief. Okay, maybe I can do this. It's brilliant. So of course, what I'm thinking of is, and I know you love your cards, but for me, or at least the next iteration of this, I would love to see it be an app because my husband and I schedule everything as a calendar notice. Every single task, I'm literally putting a cal. I mean, it's not a nagging. It's a, this is on your calendar because you have to do it. Now, oftentimes, he's a very funny guy. Oftentimes, when he sees a calendar notice that he doesn't want to do, he will just like decline. So it'd be like dinner with the whole family, decline. Can we just pause there for a second? Yes. Is that communication about domestic life? It is. Correct. Because a decline invitation is saying something, and without a context around it, it could start feeling triggering to someone who keeps getting declined invitations. I'm just pausing you there to say, maybe people are saying, well, I don't really communicate, or we don't have, even that is, I would say as a mediator, that is communication over domestic life. Yeah, oh, 100% is, but you know, it's funny because I think it depends on your personality, right? So I know he's joking. Okay, put it this way. I know he doesn't want to go. Like I know he doesn't want to do whatever it is, but I also know that he will. That's the difference. He will. And so that's why you're probably married still. Yes. Because he will. You know, the problem is when you start feeling like your resentometer is going up to seven or eight or nine or 10 because things aren't getting done reliably and well. And that is where I don't want women to be. And we can get there really, really quickly, especially if we don't rid ourselves of what I call in the book, these toxic time messages. So one of the crazy findings of Fair Play that sort of changed the way I wrote the book, because I'm really an organizational management specialist. I'm a systems person by trade. I wanted to just go straight to the solution. But why it had to be written, especially to women, was this crazy finding that kept happening that I did to myself as well, where ultimately the big finding was men, even though, again, I'm fighting over blueberries, right? Sobbing in the car over off-season blueberries that my husband wants me to be his smoothie provider. (laughs) We could be fighting over declined invitations or wet clothes and laundry dumped on our pillow. But the main core findings that men, women in society view men's time is finite, like diamonds, and women's time is infinite, like sand. If that's what's Mm. happening, and this was crazy because we know that from equal pay, you know, women in the same position don't get paid the same as men. We don't value women's time. But the crazy part about it for me was that it was women women were the worst purveyors of what I call toxic time messages, where they were guarding men's time Mm. and saying that theirs was worthless. For example, my husband makes more money than me, so I should do everything in the home, which is a terrible argument because even in the same jobs, we make less money. And if you're the primary breadwinner, women were still saying that to me sometimes, or other women saying to me, women are wired differently for this stuff. You know, I'm just a better multitasker. So, okay, so I had to go to the top neuroscientists in the country. And my favorite was this crotchety old white man who looked at me and said, oh, wow, are women, he's a neuroscientist. And I asked him, are women wired differently? Are we better multitaskers for domestic life? And he looked at me and he said, Eve, imagine we can convince half the population that they're better at wiping asses and doing dishes. How great for the other half of the population. So that was, I actually cried. Wow. There was another day where I was crying in my car based on that realization that somehow we've done this trip on women, that we are convincing them that they are better at wiping asses and doing dishes. And then my favorite was uh, in the time it takes me to tell him what to do, I might as well do it myself. Oh, well, that's a classic. Classic, right? So I went to the top behavioral economists in the country, in the world, actually, one from Israel. And 
another in the UK. And I asked them that question, is that a good argument? And they said, that's a losing argument for women because you never want to keep wiping asses and doing dishes. Of course, you want someone to learn how to do that stuff because then you'll be doing it forever otherwise at the expense of your time. And finally, I will say women and men are the same job, still same job, two producers, two shipping supervisors, two colorectal surgeons. Women were still saying to me, my husband's super busy. He needs more leisure time. He has to wind down and I can find the time. Well, we're not fucking Albert Einstein. There's no way to find time. But what happens is we have such different expectations over how women use their time that until we realize that all time is created equal, we should each get time choice over how we use our time. If women don't get that consciousness raising point, then unfortunately, the system doesn't work. Everything you're saying is so profound. And obviously, these are, you know, people who are already either partners or married couples, and they're already at that stage. But what would you recommend? Because obviously, you know, the Leave Your Mark listener is probably a bit younger than that, or I assume from my book. But what would you recommend for people that are like in their 20s that don't have kids yet? Like, how do they hedge their bets to make sure that they're finding someone who would do fair play in concept and also in reality? Because I think it's an amazing tool to have while you're in it. But how do you even prepare for that? Oh, my God. I love that question. So what my research found was that people who were willing to engage before kids, even with roommates, starting to get in a practice of using the what is your why language? How do you communicate about things that you may not have thought were important or actually really, really important? Once women were getting the consciousness that their time should be created equal, it was very interesting to watch how they were treating their relationships. And actually, I find whether it's same-sex, opposite-sex relationships, men and women are most receptive to learning and figuring things out early. And so what I say to women in their 20s and why I have so many who are following fair play, even though they're not yet in relationships, and I'll read you one beautiful message from one of them, is this idea that back to what we said before about what I found when I was looking for organizational management books on domestic life. When have we decided and convinced women that there's life-changing magic in organizing their junk drawer? Literally. <laughs> and all the products that go along with any container store. What about the life-changing magic of long-term thinking? People say to women all the time, well, there's no good time for anything, so just do it. I completely fucking disagree with that. 100% <laughs> to my core. You plan. every. We plan for everything else. We're planning for our meals for the week. We're planning for when we're going to go exercise. We're planning for when we're going to go on a girl's trip. You plan your future. And the way you do that is you start fair playing your life early by understanding that your home is your most important organization, how you talk to your partner, because this idea of, oh, the partner you pick is the most important decision you make. I don't believe that because Seth was that fair partner and he changed immensely after kids. And my mm-hmm. life changed because I didn't believe in myself. I believe my time was worthless. I was a Harvard-trained attorney and then started losing all my clients to his job, supporting his career, became a less vibrant version of myself, became invisible after kids, became an accidental traditionalist because I started leaving my corporate job because I couldn't handle it all. All disastrous consequences that were happening to me happened to me by default. So anybody in your 20s, it is the idea that you are life-changing magic and long-term thinking. What do you want out of your life? And then how do you go and fight for that? 
It's brilliant. And you're making me flashback right now. Forget about any kind of couple, the roommate comment. I mean, I remember my roommate after college, she had no problem with dishes in the sink. Dishes in the sink to me is like nails on a chalkboard. Like if I see a dish in a sink, I'm like, is it so hard to put it in the dishwasher? It's just right there next to the sink. I want to know why for you, because it would be interesting. And we'll talk a little bit about the practice of the why. Why do you feel triggered by dishes in the sink? Because it's lazy. Let's go even more further back. So what else is it triggering? Did you learn that it was lazy from your youth? Does it make you feel good to be organized and clean? Like, tell me about you as a person and why that dish in the sink was triggering. So it's interesting. Growing up, we did not, we had a dishwasher. We never used it. My family has a European background. There were no dishwashers and we washed dishes. And I am very happy to wash my dishes. You cried in washing dishes. Even though you had an easier option, your family invested in the hand washing of dishes. Yes. It was yes. something that was happening in your house. That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, we would always be like, mom, why can't we just use the dishwasher? There'd be like a dinner party and there'd be like 50 dishes and we'd be all in a row, like washing dishes and drying them. And the dishwasher would just, I mean, I think it broke from not being used. I mean, it just was not. I started tearing up a little bit thinking about your beautiful family <laughs> sort of in this line and how it became like a communal activity as well too. So there was yeah. something beautiful about. And quite honestly, like, a dishwasher cycle is quite long. Like it's much faster to wash them by hand. But anyway, those are the conversations that Fair Play asks you to have. And that's the beauty because a lot of women, especially in their 20s, will say, well, how do I know that, you know, someone's going to do things to my standard? And that's sort of how I get these habits. So I think there's a lot of shaming stuff out there saying to women, lower your standards. I don't believe in that. I don't believe men need to raise their standards, but I do believe you need to meet in the middle at a minimum standard of care. Mm-hmm. That's what we use for the law. That's what we use for doctors, um, this idea of a minimum standard of care. What would a reasonable person do? And so what I realized for me was that once I started fair playing with ownership, Seth totally understood the CPE, the conception, planning, and execution, the ownership, because that's how he does things in business. You know, He gives people the context, not control to do their job. But what was missing was I was still stalking him over tasks. Like, I'll give you an example, garbage, similar to your dishes. He took ownership of that, which meant taking the, you know, it's harder than Manhattan. You know, we just threw shit in a garbage chute. Out here, you have to take your damn bins out. You know, you obviously have to put the bag back in. It's a process. So he took ownership, but I couldn't let it go. I couldn't let him go and do his garbage card without being his garbage shadow, without staring at him, without opening the door under the sink because Seth is tall and thinking, wow, hopefully he'll fall over this damn open door and get the garbage liner and start taking out the damn garbage. It became so insidious that I realized that fair play was missing exactly the values-based mediation that I taught my clients for 10 years, which is to start with what is your why? I started asking couples, what's your wedding day vow? And how do you live that every day? People look at me like I'm insane and they have no idea what I'm talking about. But when I say to take a new vow over garbage, they look at me like I'm even more insaner because that's what Fair Play is asking. It's a new vow over garbage. And when I was able to give Seth my why, similar to taking you back to why you care about dishes or what they are for you, for me, the garbage was able to say to Seth, you know, my mom, you know that she gets locked out all the time. She's lost. You know, she's very, she's an absent-minded professor. But what you don't know is that we didn't have a garbage can growing up. We grew up in Avenue C and 14th Street. We always just had a takeout bag on a knob in the kitchen. 
and garbage would spill all over the place. And so my house was infested with cockroaches and water bugs and meal bugs. Even in my Rice Krispies, my mom would say they were Cocoa Krispies because there would be black bugs in there. It was a trigger. And so when I was able to say to Seth, I'm seven years old again, I'm the latchkey kid who's coming home alone Mm -hmm. from school in first grade by myself, taking care of my brother. I don't want to be that little girl again. Seth was then able to say to me, look, I grew up in a household where garbage was taken out for me. I don't give a shit about garbage. I slept on Domino's pizza boxes in my fraternity. But what happens when something that you have to get done every single day, you have such different values over? Well, that's why we end up divorcing over these stupid shit like blueberries. But when you can invest in those why conversations, ultimately, Seth and I came up with a plan, which is he would own garbage. We'd redeal, you know, maybe in a couple of weeks, but he'd own garbage for the next couple of weeks. And it would go out once a day, not every hour like I would want it to, once a day, I never mentioned the fucking word garbage ever again, right? And so that's amazing. It started going out. It was a miracle. Well, I'm trying to convince everyone out there that when you start communicating about domestic life, start with your why. And that works very well in other types of communications as well. I totally agree. It's fascinating. And now, you know, also, it makes you hyper aware. Like now, you know, for the rest of the night, I'm going to be like looking around for things. <laughs> By the way, it really helps my kids too. It helps my kids because we've been trying to get them to an earlier bedtime. Oh, please. What works? Well, I started printing out articles about brain science and what it looks like in 10 hours of healthy sleep. And we started reading them together. And this idea of your why. I'm, I'm not just being a nag or why I want you, you know, but this is why we invest in sleep. This is what are the benefits it's going to do for you over time. And then all of a sudden, my kids stop resisting in early bedtime. The why is a very powerful tool. And it's what I've been using in a mediation practice. And if anybody gets anything out of this, it's one, start with your why when you're communicating with difficult conversations, especially with your partners that you care about. And number two, no feedback in the moment. Interesting. Interesting. It was a very popular tool for women to give feedback in the moment. And what I realized was that over and over again, I asked them, was it an emergency? And very rarely was it an emergency. Yes, there was one time when someone was putting butt cream on a baby's face because they said, oh, it's Zank, who cares? But most of the time, there was no emergency. When you can hold your tongue like a practice for your weekly check-in, for a time when your kids are not running around screaming, maybe when you have alcohol in front of you or an ice cream sundae, and you can invest 20 minutes a week in your check-in, then what happens is it's very hard to hold your tongue. But when you start doing that, I started having lists of things I wanted to tell Seth. And then I'd look at the list and it'd have things on it like yellow rag. And I'd have no idea what the hell I was going to be arguing with him over. And then I realized, wow, there's nine or 10 things on this list. And ultimately, I only want to talk about one. That was nine micro arguments we were going to have this week over shit that didn't matter. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. I think the yellow rag scenario, it's the same as the dishes in the sink. It's like waiting to have the conversation at a time where someone's going to be receptive to the conversation. Exactly. Say that a hundred times because that's (laughs) it. That's it. When you can be receptive, when someone can hear you. And again, as a mediator, my favorite boss, you know, she said to me, look, you tell your clients when emotion is high, cognition is low. And It's true. And there's a lot of science behind that, that we can't hear. 
when emotion is high. We really are not receptive to those messages. It's funny. I, I actually have always practiced this in my relationship, which is what I call back pocket. So I just... Oh, same thing. Okay. Tell me about back pocket. Back pocket. Like, especially, you know, when we were dating or there were in-law issues or, you know, all that stuff that you have in the early years of your marriage, like something would bother me. And I knew that it was going to be a fight, but it wasn't going to be worth it to have the discussion at the time. And I didn't want to be nitpicky because, you know, there was like a bunch of little things that like just bothered me and I would just stick them in my back pocket and then wait for a time where I saw the same action again. And then I would say, okay, so you just did that. And actually you did the same thing on X date. So obviously it's happened before because I'm, you know, listen, I'm a fashion girl. So I believe in trend stories. So if I see a trend, I'm going to gather multiples of the same thing together. I love that. Yeah. Patterning. That's right. Yeah. To show a pattern. I think that's beautiful. The back pocket rule is a great rule. Yeah. I mean, it's the same as what you're saying. It is two things. It is holding on to those things a little bit longer. And look, it does feel really good to emotionally vomit on someone. I like to do that a lot. And so that's why the, the no feedback at the moment actually took me the longest to practice. But I will say it's probably the most transformative thing to my relationship. And again, these are rules that anybody can take, even women who are not partnered. Because this idea of what is your why, very helpful in the workplace. This idea of backpocketing and being able to come back to people when you're calm, um, mm-hmm. a very effective way to ask for a raise, not in the same meeting where you got your performance review, where things may be hot and heavy. You say, you know, I'd like to come back to talk about salary a different day. There is a lot of beauty in the wait. Well, I can picture the career version of this book coming out next. Yes, yes. yes. We want to do a fair play for business because ironically, these organizational science concepts of things like the directly responsible individual, the context not control, the CPE, the conception planning and execution, the owning a full task to completion yeah. are things that came out of the business world. But sadly, a lot of people who are in business don't even understand organizational management science because they weren't taught it. So it's a good role in general to be the DRI, not to wait for trash to be picked up on the floor. We don't go into our boss's office and say, hey, what should I be doing today? I'll just wait here to you tell me what to do. But we're sort of treating our homes like that. It allows for shitty stuff in midlife for women. And so that's why I will go back to there's a life-changing magic in long-term thinking and planning and communicating, setting your systems and habits early. It is the number one thing I can tell you that people are giving me feedback from in their 20s is this idea of how to communicate, how to set systems and habits, how to have these conversations with boyfriends. I had one woman say to me that her boyfriend didn't want to hold any cards. And so she said, you know what? It was a red flag. I I was out of there. So I said, great. Great. I'm glad you know now. Like actually wouldn't, just wouldn't play. Wouldn't play and said like, this is not stuff I'm going to do. And like, you should know now. Like, you know, I don't do dishes. I don't (laughs) do laundry. So thank God. And how great that she learned now, right? As opposed to five years, 10 years in. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's good things to know. It's a great thing to know. And back to the work version of this, like, I think also with sort of, you know, the advent of more flat structure organizationally um, and less hierarchy, it becomes very unclear sometimes what everyone's role is. Like it can be mass confusion if everyone is sort of the same. 
And I'll give you my three tips for business, which came out of, again, sort of what the fair play life looks like. But this works well for our corporations and entrepreneurship and whatever women are doing in their lives is that when you are managing somebody or you're being managed, the way you know you're in a successful organization are three things. Explicitly define expectations. Clearly define expectations. That's one. Two is knowing your role. And three is fairness and transparency. And so that's what I would ask for, you know, your listeners to look for when they're going into an organization. Um, Do those three things have it? And if they don't, how can you help clarify that for yourself? Because the more transparency you have over salary, you know, are there salary bans you can ask the company, then that's great. What is my clearly defined role, explicitly defined expectations? I don't want to be brought into a meeting at the 25th hour and not know why I'm sitting there. Um, I'd like to have some context for my role. Yeah. And then, you know, those are the types of things that come out of starting to think organizationally in systems about not only your home life, but your work life as well. So smart. Oh my God, Eve, you're brilliant and your book is brilliant and your game is brilliant. Congratulations. And this is really a triumph because this is a puzzle that no one has been able to crack to date. I mean, it's super exciting. I'm so honored to have you on the podcast and I can't wait to see what's next for you. I really appreciate it. Like I said, to be amongst the women that you interview feels super meaningful to me and I appreciate you believing in these messages because the reason why I'm doing this and I'm on the road is not because I don't like my kids or my family. (laughs) My husband's an amazing fair player. He's holding all the cards from someone who started with none is that I believe, I believe that for us to be more than 4% of the CEOs in this country, for 80% of women businesses not to fail, for us to be in places of policy where we are half the lawmakers in this country, we have to step out of the domestic work in our home. And we have to step into the full power, our full power in the world by inviting men to step into their full power in the home. It's a great message. It's a great lesson. And I think everyone can benefit from this book. Thank you. Have a great rest of your night. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter, Blackboard, you can do so on alizalick.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at alizalickxo or reach out on Twitter at alizalick. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.